Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. I am so pleased to bring to you a conversation with legendary economist, Dr. Gary Schilling, president of A. Gary Schilling and Company, a registered investment advisor and economic consultancy. In this episode, we get Dr. Schilling's macroeconomic outlook and why he sees that we are likely headed toward recession. He also shares his outlook on the Federal Reserve's monetary policy. He also goes into winners and losers in this economic environment and where you want to be and where you want to avoid. And Dr. Schilling, who is adept at spotting bubbles, shares where he sees the next bubble popping up in commercial real estate. I really enjoyed this episode with Dr. Schilling. I learned so much from him, and I know you will too. Dr. Gary Schilling, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It is an absolute honor to welcome you to the show. Glad to be with you. Well, I am glad to have you, and I had some of our viewers recommend you especially, so it is an absolute treat. Now, Dr. Schilling, I'd like to start where I always start with my guest, and that is to get their big picture, their macro view. So for you, I would love for you to frame up um, the big picture, whether it's the the intersection of the financial spheres, the intersection of the economic spheres, and the markets. What is that big picture outlook for you today? And feel free to take as much time as you need. Right now, we're in a very interesting situation where we've gone back and forth between widespread convictions of recession and most recently a, a soft landing. Uh, we're, we're the view that we probably do have a recession uh, coming shortly if we're not already in it nobody rings the bell uh, but if you look at if you look at many of the major indicators that are reliably forerunners of recessions things like the inverted yield curve uh, things like the leading indicator series and most important the Federal Reserve the Federal Reserve is absolutely determined to curb inflation they want to knock it down to two percent and Two percent that will stay there, and they'll they have no concern about a recession to to get there. So I I think when you look at when you look at that that combination of things, it's pretty hard to escape a recession. Now now most people obviously would prefer not to have a recession, and I think it's fair to say that most most forecasters on Wall Street are paid to be bullish. And I know from personal experience <laughs> that if you're bearish, even if you're correct, uh, it's uh, very detrimental to job security. And that's why I set up my own firm and, uh, many years ago, avoid that hazard. Uh, but but I, I so I, you have to realize there is a strong bias there of uh, not only people wanting to see growth in the economy, uh, et cetera, but also uh, being egged on by Wall Street pundits. Yeah. Well, also, you, uh, Dr. Schillen, you point out that most are paid to be bullish. And for folks, um, you were the first chief economist at Merrill Lynch. You set up shop there. And I know, I think it was Don Reagan, you said, was the one who fired you. And then you worked for another firm that got acquired by Merrill Lynch. So I think you said you were the only person fired twice or something. That's along correct. <laughs> That's yeah. correct. That was a firm called White Well that was uh, bought by Merrill Lynch, uh, about five years after I got there. So, so that's when I set up our own firm in 1985. That's right. Well, for folks who are also watching, listen, you have made some prescient calls over the years. I read your book, The Age of Deleveraging, where you outlined seven just spot on calls. So again, when I say it's a treat and an honor to have you, I really mean that. Now, um, listening to your first answer, a couple of things I want to just pull in a few threads. And the Federal Reserve being the most important part, I want to go a little bit deeper there and the Fed remaining resolute in getting back to that 2% inflation target. Do you think that's realistic to get back to that target? Do you see that as a real possibility? Well, I, I think it is uh, for a number of reasons. Well, one is, of course, the Fed determination. Uh, but if you, if you look at, you know, what, what are the basic cause of inflation? Basic cause of inflation is demand exceeding supply. Uh, 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 and 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 in other words, if you've got a world with excess demand, uh, you have inflation. Prices go up. Now there's a there's a major force which has been at work in the world for the last three decades, which I think is continuing. It's called globalization. And by globalization, what I mean is the use of Western technology and cheap Asian labor, and that produces a lot of products 
many of them exported. Of course, China has been the uh, forerunner in globalization. Now, China is a different situation now. Uh, their, their political issues, their military issues with China, we're all aware of. Uh, and also, uh, it's not that well known, but China is deliberately trying to promote a more domestic-driven economy. They are increasing minimum wages, which are done on a provincial basis, by 20-25% a year because they want to increase incomes and have people with money for local demand. Well, that means a lot of the, of the cheap products that we got from China earlier are, are no longer available. But the, the production is mo moving to other areas like Vietnam, Bangladesh, and the 800-pound gorilla in the room, uh, from my money, is, is India. Uh, so I don't think globalization has disappeared, it's shifted. And of course, there's also been, uh, after, after the uh, COVID and, uh, and, the, and the crisis there, there's been a realization that supply chains can be very disruptive. So we're seeing a lot of production move to closer areas. Mexico, I think, is a big, is a big uh, beneficiary of this, of this trend. Uh, but I don't think this is right. As long as you have these huge, huge labor cost differences and Western technology, which can be moved around the world pretty easily, uh, I, I think we're going to have globalization. And that is a very, very deflationary force. So I think that's uh, probably first and foremost the reason that I think that we're in for low inflation. Now, low in inflation is the biggest driver of interest rates. Um, we've, we've analyzed 30-year Treasury bond yields in the entire post-war period. And if we look at the correlation between those Treasury bond yields and year-over-year -year, uh, changes in consumer prices, there's over an 80% correlation. Now, that's amazing. You think of all the other factors that could affect uh, long-term interest rates, uh, fiscal policy, wars, uh, political uh, uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera. But it's inflation first and foremost, which is a is a dominant factor. So if you've got excess supply, you've got downward pressures on inflation, and that translates into lower interest rates. Dr. Schilling, I'd love to hear more on that. I was just taking notes, and you're helping all of us learn and get better. I want to hear more about that correlation um, with the 30-year and, and consumer prices. Can you just elaborate a bit more? And I, I apologize if I missed it. I just found that interesting. I'd love to hear more. Well, it's 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 pretty simple. And in, in, in its, in its uh, statistical correlation, you simply look at the year-over-year -year change in the CPI uh, from right after World War II. And then you look at the uh, at the yield on the 30-year treasury and you run a simple correlation. And, and that's where you get. Now, of course, you know, statistics... Uh, uh, statistics uh, are not causality. You can't prove causality with statistics. So you have to look behind them to see what, what's the driving force. And as I say, I think it was, if you look at the earlier post-war period, uh, inflation and long-term treasury yields rose from right after World War II until 1980. Uh, there, was, there was strong demand. It was, it was a, global, uh, a global growth recovery after World War II and so on. Uh, and uh, freeing up of interest rates by the Fed right after the war. But then by the time you got to by the late 70s and, and early 80s, the, the world had caught up. And that's when globalization, which really started in China in the 1970s, got to be significant. You know, a lot of these things, uh, they start very small and they don't mean much initially uh, because they're just not big enough to move the, move the needle. But by the, by the 80s, 1980s, it definitely got that way. So that's when we saw, uh, we saw a difference. We also saw, and this was a subject that I wrote about in the first book I wrote uh, in the early 80s, we also saw a change in the mood of the, of, of the uh, U.S. electorate. Uh, before that, people were basically convinced that government was a positive force in their lives. Again, there was a correlation between economic growth after World War II and, uh, and a rising government involvement in the economy, and again, you can't prove causality with statistics, but people did uh, associate the two. But by the, by the late 70s, faith in government had definitely deteriorated. Two things had happened. One is Vietnam, very unpopular. And secondly, and partly because of Vietnam, we had a huge burst of inflation. And people really, uh, really just decided that government was not a positive force. 
two things that we noted at the time. One was in 1978. It was called Proposition 13 in California. Uh, some people might remember, but, but basically what it said was that if people continue to live in their houses, their property taxes were limited. Previously, they've been just going up like, like crazy with house prices and, and inflation. And that was in 1978. And then the 1980 election, uh, we saw the election of, of President Reagan, uh, who was committed to curb government spending and, and uh, inflation. Now, he didn't curb government spending nearly as much as he promised, as it turned out. But it did reflect the changing mood of the country. And, and as a matter of fact, that's, at, that point, uh, at that point, I decided that inflation was on the way out. I uh, wrote, wrote the first book. It was called, Is Inflation Ending? Are You Ready? The answer to the first question was, yes, I think it is ending because the mood of the country has changed. We no longer have this excess supply coming from government. And secondly, I said people weren't ready because they had their portfolios at that time stuffed with all the darlings of inflation, uh, 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 tangible assets, gold, antiques, artwork. And they didn't have enough stocks and bonds, which would benefit from disinflation, meaning slower and slower inflation rates. And that's that's indeed what happened. I mean, if you look at if you look at uh, Treasury yields, uh, they were 13 percent at that point. Uh, uh, long-term Treasury yields, and now they now they got down below three percent. And uh, we made I made a, a statement and uh, backed it up with our investment strategies. I said we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime, and and uh, that was uh, that was in the early '80s when you had these very high interest rates. Interestingly enough, the first book I wrote on that uh, I mentioned is inflation are you ending uh, was a complete sales bust because nobody believed it was possible. As a matter of fact, the publisher, McGraw-Hill, gave us, literally gave us the last 600 copies. They said, you pay the postage, we'll give them to you. Oh, <laughs> but what was interesting is that in 1986, when this forecast was coming true, um, two, two business editors at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer and the Boston Globe, ex-post reviewed, re, uh, reviewed the book. Uh, well, by that time, it was long out of print. But it was a pyrrhic victory, but at least, at least it was nice to know that it was it recognized that the forecasts were coming true. But I bet those who bought the book got to benefit from it if they, if they listened to it. So you're right. You've, that was one of your great calls was the disinflation in the early 1980s. And as you point out, um, you called the bond ra- you called for the bond rally of a lifetime. So Correct. fast forward to today, and this is another, again, I would just love for you to share your views on the bond market rates. I think the folks would just find that incredibly beneficial. What is your view on the, on it today? Well, we've obviously had a huge backup in in uh, in Treasury yields, interest rates in general. A lot of that because of the Fed. Uh, the Fed is mentioned is absolutely determined to curb inflation, and their principal uh, instrument is raising interest rates. Now, the Fed started way behind the the eight ball. Uh, if you go back to previous Fed chairman Alan Greenspan, uh, that was what was what was uh, that the watchword then was called the Greenspan put. The idea was that that uh, Wall Street could put could unload any of its problems on the Fed. And then when uh, when uh, Ben Bernanke followed Greenspan, it was a it was assumed that we had the Bernanke put. And then Janet Yellen was a Yellen put. Well, so Powell came along very much uh, behind the eight ball. And on top of that, early last year, um, the Fed was not con- not really convinced that inflation was taking off. They thought it was a, uh, a problem of reopening uh, economic frictions and supply chain disruptions that were going to go away soon. And as a matter of fact, the Fed did not start raising rates until March. And, and inflation actually peaked. If you look at year-over-year uh, CPI, it, 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 it peaked at over 9% only three months later. So the Fed was very much late to the party. They had a huge credibility problem. And I think that was it's a strong reason that uh, Chairman Powell and, and the rest of the Fed officials have decided that they are going to kill inflation because they realize that if they don't, their credibility will be very seriously impaired and they'll have a much tougher time later. So, so you have a, you have, you've had a very very big uh, a reinforcement on the downside of inflation. Now, of course, the expense of that has been has been high interest rates. Uh, well, I think we finally we finally uh, reached the peak in interest rates. They were pushed up by the Fed. The Fed raises 
uh, it's overnight rate, uh, one day at a time, but it spreads throughout the yield curve uh, with lesser and lesser intensity, but it did go all the way out to 10-year and 30-year treasury yields. But it looks like you know, recently we've seen a, a rally in treasuries declining, uh, declining interest rates, and I think we probably have, have, have reached the peak. Uh, there's a growing realization that the Fed is serious, that they're going to kill inflation, that recession is probably the price of that, and, uh, and that the Fed has, uh, is restoring its credibility. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned the recession being the price of that, I-, I take it you're in a hard landing camp. And I am. If you are, can you help me understand, um, and I've started asking folks this, because it's usually, are you soft landing, hard landing? What does a hard landing look like, and how does that play out from where you sit? Hard landing is a recession. <laughs> That's it, pretty much pure and simple. It means that you do get uh, decline in overall economic activity. Now, if you look at the entire post-war period, uh, the declines in real inflation-adjusted GDP uh, basically have been 2 or 3% in recessions. It's not a lot, uh, but it is a disruption of the normal growth, which has been running around 2 to 2.5% per year. Uh, so that that's what you mean by a by a hard landing, but of course it it just isn't GDP. It's the whole economy, and it's a much greater effect on corporate profits. Corporate profits normally decline in recessions twenty to thirty percent, and uh, and uh, and stock prices uh, the same. I I've, I've been of the opinion that stocks, and I came out with this forecast early last year, would decline would decline about uh, thirty to forty percent peak to trough. They had a 20% decline last year. Then they revived, uh, sold off uh, since. But it, it means you, you have a further decline of about 30% from here uh, to get that 40% overall decline peak to trough. Uh, but so, so a recession, in terms of the total economy, it, it's, not, it's not big, but it has, it has big implications, particularly for financial markets. Hey there, I just want to quickly interrupt the video and just say thank you. Thank you so much for coming to this channel and choosing to watch this interview. I hope that you are enjoying it and I appreciate you visiting the channel. If you like what you see, please hit that subscribe button. It doesn't cost anything. It's totally free and it will keep you up to date on all of my interviews. I post two interviews a week with some of the most incredible people in in finance and investing and your support will help me bring in some more amazing guest. If you already are one of my subscribers, thank you so much. I cannot express to you how much your support means to me. I am incredibly grateful that I get to do something that I'm truly passionate about. And you being there week after week, it not only gives me that energy, but it just gives me that faith to keep going. And it means everything to me. And I love seeing you all in the comments section. I love interacting with you. I love interacting with you on email or social media. I just love hearing from you all. And I just appreciate your support so much. I feel incredibly lucky that I get to do something that I just love. So I just want to say thank you and appreciate you subscribing. All right, back to the interview. What is your view on what's ahead for the Fed and monetary policy, I guess, in the event of a recession? Rate cuts? What do you think? Yeah, I think rate cuts, but probably uh, much slower than usual. If you look at the last four business cycles, the Fed actually shifted from tightness to ease even before the peak in the economy. If you look at a chart showing the uh, recessions and when they started, the last four uh, uh, cycles, they, the Fed, the Fed uh, federal funds rate, the Fed's policy instrument, actually declined before the recession started. In other words, they saw that they had done the recessionary deed and and shifted gears. This time, I think they're going to be much slower to do so for two reasons. One is they want to make sure <clears throat> that inflation is killed and killed dead. Uh, they, they, they just do not want to risk a relapse. And secondly, labor markets are slower than usual to see the change in the economy. A lot of businessmen spent tr- tremendous amounts of time and energy hiring people earlier on, and so it's 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 uh, it takes time for them to shift gears from hiring to firing. They will eventually. That always happens. Uh, uh, corporate sales of profits weaken, and and they they really don't have any choice. But I think that'll take longer than normal. Now the Fed obviously looks at the, at the labor markets. That that's their that's a, a key 
uh, area of concern right now. And so as long as it as long as there isn't a big layoff binge, that's another reason that the Fed is probably going to be slower than usual to to cut rates. I, I think they will start cutting rates next year. But, uh, you know, the earlier thought that they were going to cut twice early in the year. And again, this is this is part of this uh, uh, soft landing hope uh, uh, they always be bullish on Wall Street. <laughs> we talked about earlier. Uh, well, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be later. And uh, the whole idea that we're going to have higher rates longer, I'm not so sure. You know, they, they, you got to be very careful. The most easiest forecast is a continuation of the current situation. That's always the easiest because it's 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 there. You simply and and normally tomorrow's like today. Only you hope a little bit better. And also, it's the most believable. Uh, the most real forecast is a continuation of the current. So, so right now the feeling is uh, higher for longer, uh, maybe. Well, I, I'm not convinced of that. I, I, I think that maybe when the Fed finally does see the footprints on the ceiling and starts to cut rates, it could come with a lot more speed. But I think it could be later. It could be well into next year before they finally see enough evidence of a weak economy and inflation cut back to lower rates, which they consider permanent, that they will be. Uh, making a decided shift from credit tightness to ease. Well, not only are you an economic consultancy, but I know you also um, run money. And so I, my other question for you is, um, given this kind of environment, what are in your what's in your view? Like, what are the winners and the losers in this kind of environment? Where do you want to be? Where do you want to avoid? Well, we're reg- we're registered investment advisors, and I can tell you how we invest. Uh, money, and that's not only my own money, family foundation, <laughs> my wife's money, our four kids' money, our grandchildren's money, but money we manage for outside investors as well. And it's very much a, a what you call a risk-off portfolio. Uh, it's it's basically, and and we're top down. We're we're not stock pickers. Uh, we start with the economic, financial, uh, political spheres. You mentioned those early on, and and then see what what uh, what uh, investment themes follow from that. And then invest accordingly. So uh, right now we're we're invested in uh, we're long uh, treasuries, uh, treasury bonds, uh, which I think are, are, the rally has started, and I think they've got a long way to go. Uh, we're long the dollar. The dollar is a safe haven, and we're in a very difficult world situation. And when there's trouble around the world, the dollar benefits. Uh, the third thing we're we're short stocks, uh, modestly so, but we're short somewhat. Uh, the the S and P we use exchange traded funds and and finally uh, we're short commodities and and we do that via copper. I, I like copper uh, for a couple of reasons. One is copper goes into almost any manufactured product. That that microphone in front of you has got some copper in it, whether you believe it or not, it does. And you know machinery, uh, appliances, cars, etc. So car uh, copper prices are a very good indicator of global. Uh, economic activity, industrial production, and it has been weakening, of course. And the other thing I like about copper is it doesn't have a cartel on either the demand or supply side. And you can have a great fundamental forecast, and oil is a good example of this. You can have a great fundamental forecast on energy prices, and then OPEC Plus comes along overnight and makes a big pronouncement, and really your forecast goes out the window. Copper doesn't have cartels when uh, meaningful cartels on either supply or demand side. So so that's why I like copper, and particularly now on the short side. And you also, um, so you mentioned oil. I, I One of your first jobs was you were an economist at Standard Oil, I believe. Yeah, so, Standard Oil, New Jersey, now ExxonMobil. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, um, I, okay, I have a couple more questions just on the commodity front because people do, they are interested in these topics. Um, let's hear your views on oil. Well, Oil, uh, you know, oil has been really quite interesting because there was a thought that with with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and and even now the problems in the Middle East that it was going to result in a huge spike in oil. And of course, on top of that, uh, OPEC plus, which is OPEC plus a few other countries, Russia included, related to it, uh, that they were cutting production. And the feeling was that oil prices were going to go going to go through the roof. Uh, that hasn't happened. They've actually weakened. From their from their peak, and I think it's a, it's a couple of factors. One is there was the assumption of a much 
bigger curtailment of supply than actually turned out to be the case. And a lot of that's a political uh, issue. And the second is the demand hasn't been that hasn't been that strong. Now, of course, another factor which is there, but it's not yet all that big, which is uh, electric uh, electric cars. In other words, uh, using less gasoline. Uh, but when you look at when you look at the total cost of producing the cars and the batteries and so on, there's a lot of energy to lose. It's not a it's not a uh, it's not a a net plus no no offsets. Uh, so I, that's not, I don't think that's been a really big factor, but I think it's really been uh, sluggishness in global economies and uh, and uh, supply not coming down as much as some people thought. And of course, the U.S. Uh, oil production has picked up. Uh, there's uh, now fracking, oil fracking is not as pressed. It used to be, you know, if you go back five years ago, it was drill, baby, drill. The idea is drill up more in the Permian Basin uh, for the, uh, uh, for the, uh, uh, oil, oil there, uh, but uh, then a lot of investors in in oil companies are involved in that in fracking and oil fracking. Said, wait a minute, we want some, we want some money, we want some dividends. Uh, so you've had less emphasis in that, but there still is a lot of of that. And with uh, drilling techniques, horizontal drilling, where they can drill down a mile and then go <laughs> go horizontally for four or five miles, is amazing technology. So uh, U.S. oil production has has definitely increased as a result. Uh, so you got a lot of factors that I think have offset what, uh, at the offset, looked like it was going to be a huge spike in oil prices. Mm-hmm. Another area you brought up was the U.S. dollar being a safe haven. So I want to get your reaction. Remember, just a few months ago, it was all this talk about de-dollarization. So I would love just to get more of your viewpoint on the U.S. dollar. Well, the, the, the dollar is safe haven. If you look at total global... Uh, activity, uh, finance, business, imports, exports, 88% of all those tra- transactions involve the dollar. Uh, you know, there's, re- and, and, and you not only have a dollar as a dominant currency, but there's really no alternative. Uh, you know, always remember that if you're talking about currencies, you're talking about one currency against another. And so you say, what, what's the alternative? Well, Euro, uh, Europe has got, uh, the Eurozone, they've got, they're, 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 have more economic problems than the U.S. Japan, um, Japan does not want the yen to be a global currency. They're, they are, they continue to be inward looking. China, uh, they like the yuan to be a global currency, but international money does not go to controlled currencies. It goes to free markets, and China is very definitely a, a controlled uh, market. And then you look at some of the uh, s- smaller countries that are open, like Switzerland. Or Singapore, but they're too small to really make a big dent. So you really, almost by process of elimination, you haven't got anything but the dollar, and the dollar continues to be the world's dominant currency. Now, okay, what happens? Well, when you get when you get economic problems, as I mentioned earlier, uh, people go for safe havens, and that means the dollar. And one more area that I didn't hear you bring up, but it tends to be very popular with our viewers and listeners: gold. What are your views on gold? I'm agnostic on gold. Agnostic. Uh, I, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, gold jumped up to $800 an ounce uh, back in the late 70s. That would be now about, uh, I think, $3,000 an ounce. And then it went flat for 20 years. Uh, but my feeling on gold is that uh, there are just so many forces that affect the price of gold. It can be uh, political issues. It can be economic uh, problems, military issues, uh, supply demand. They can work over all old gold tailings to get more gold out of them. Uh, it's inflation, deflation. And and uh, all I can conclude is that most of the time, these forces tend to cancel each other out, and none of them are dominant that you get a strong direction in gold. So um, I've, I've, I've always been agnostic on gold, and I think uh, I think history has proven that it has is not it has not been a very good investment. Mm-hmm. Agnostic, okay. And then I also heard you mention being bullish on treasuries. Is that like where on the curve do you want to be right now? Well, I I like the long end because uh, if you if you're uh, as I am of the opinion that the long term trend is is down as it has been since the early '80s, the longer the maturity, the more bang per buck you get, the the bigger the price appreciation. For a given decline in yields. Now, I've always, always, always bought treasuries for 
appreciation. I don't care what the yield is as long as it's going down, because when the yield goes down, the price goes up. And and there's you know there's an awful lot of of, of misinformation on this. People want to ladder treasuries and so on. Hey, your portfolio is worth what it is today. Sort of saying it's going to be worth more tomorrow. Okay, that's a forecast. That's not reality. And 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 so I think that uh, my my view is uh, long long treasuries uh, simply because you get more bang for buck uh, with interest rates declining. And that's what's happening. I've been you know going back to the early eighties. A, a very strong uh, advocate of zero coupon treasuries, uh, which give you even more bang per buck because you don't have the reinvestment risk. You don't have to, uh, if rates come down, you're not reinvesting uh, the proceeds of, of uh, interest uh, of, of, of yields in uh, at lower rates. It's a little bit complicated math- mathematically, but uh, I've always been a strong advocate of zero coupon long treasuries. Yeah. Well, I have to say one of my viewers said that you were um, one of the best economists for duration managers. So I know they appreciate hearing uh, your viewpoints on the matter. Another topic I'd love to bring up with you and uh, for folks who are watching and listening, um, Dr. Schilling, you nailed the subprime housing call. And I know you were able to profit from that trade alongside John Paulson, um, which is one of the greatest trades of all time. So I am keen to hear your views on what is going on in housing? Not much. <laughs> well, I can't buy a house. I feel like I cannot buy a house right now as a millennial. Uh, I'm, I want one. I can't buy one. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. first of all, housing is a very, it's a small sector of the economy. Uh, it runs anywhere from, uh, it's very volatile. It can run from 3% of GDP to 6% of GDP. It's very small, but it's very volatile. And, and the key reason is because it's so interest rate sensitive. Uh, if, if you figure if somebody takes out an FHA loan, uh, puts down 3%, which you can with an FHA loan, and borrows a 97%, uh, boy, that's a 33 times leverage. <laughs> that means that any decline in the price is hugely punishing. Uh, and of course, increase in the price is hugely rewarding. But it, but it makes housing very, very volatile. Now, what has happened, of course, uh, as I think is well known, a lot of people locked in lower mortgage rates before the pandemic. And and as a result, uh, they, they don't want to move uh, unless they're going to a retirement home or, or, or somehow getting out of the housing market entirely. But to sell a house today that has a mortgage on and, and buy another house, they go from a mortgage that might be, you know, four percent to one that's close to eight percent, a huge increase. And as a result, the the amount of income it takes uh, at today's house prices uh, and today's mortgage rates is about forty percent of income. Well, that's about twice what it was back in the. <laughs> you're smiling. You you run the numbers for yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tough luck. <laughs> uh, but anyway. But anyway, it it is it is uh, really locked in a lot of people into their current houses. Now that has some very interesting effects because it means that there's been a a, a lack of supply of existing housing, so it has made new housing construction uh, much more attractive. New houses being built uh, because it obviously is is new supply. It's not coming from existing houses being being sold. Uh, but the, but you know that the the basic point is that. That mortgage rates, when you when you get all through it at the end of the day, mortgage rates are very very significant, and uh, in terms of affordability, uh, in terms of people willingness to sell their houses, existing houses, and moves, and so on. And I think housing, and, and uh, uh, until you had a decided decline in interest rates, and with them mortgage rates, uh, you probably housing is going to be pretty much continue to be pretty dead on existing housing. New housing, yeah, it's being built. Uh, that's where the that's where the demand is being met. Mm, maybe it's better to build then um, rather than buy an existing. I suppose. I when we talk about the affordability, though, that is a uh, is a curiosity to me. Is just like your views on um, the affordability of housing, maybe even the affordability of cars these days. How do you think that kind of factors in? Because I imagine there are a lot of folks who are probably struggling to afford these types of things that. You know, when you think about that's kind of like what you aspire to. It's a bit of the American dream to have your house, car, all of those things. What are your views there? Well, it 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 does mean that uh, that you've had a number of of, of changes here. 
Now, bear in mind that uh, households, by definition, a household is formed when you when you move when one or more people move into a separate dwelling unit. That's literally the definition. In other words, it isn't though households are formed and then people say, "Oh, let's go find a, some house to live." To live, no, a household is formed when you move into a house. Well, the reason I mention that is because people who can't afford it one way or the other, what do they do? Well, they can rent, uh, which which is is one outlet. Uh, and of course, we've had a lot of other factors affecting rent, in, including the pandemic, uh, which encouraged a lot of people uh, not to not to work in cities, and so they want to uh, they want to. Uh, work locally, and a lot of businesses are forming uh, satellite offices in effect, and so people are interested in, uh, they move to the suburbs and the rural areas with a pandemic, so that, that's, been, that's been a factor in terms, in terms of this. And another thing that's happening is doubling up. If you look at, uh, if you look at people doubling up, uh, that has increased. People under 35 living, living at home, uh, now you think, gee, when they get tired of living with the folks, but the, the surveys indicate that they accommodate very well. <laughs> that kind of surprised me. Uh, but but the uh, but the increase in the percentage of people who are living at home, uh, and a lot of it's simply because they can't afford uh, housing. Uh, so it's it's a very fluid kind of situation, and there are a lot of a lot of pieces. And whether people form households, and if they do, where they live is it a rental? Uh, do they do they buy a house? Do they lease a house? They live with their parents. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of different pieces here. It's not a it's not a really simple situation. Certainly, Dr. Schilling, would it be fair um, to say I'm just stepping back? Are are you considered a bit of a contrarian? And if you are, what is something you're contrarian on today that's against the consensus? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, a contrarian, and this is my definition. A contrarian is somebody who is always opposed to the consensus. Regardless of what the consensus says, the contrarian says, I disagree. I'm not in that camp. Uh, I can't afford to be. Uh, as a forecaster, <laughs> taking the other side of the consensus, uh, it works sometimes, but not always. I consider myself a realist, and, I, and I'm looking to add value. Now, as we discussed earlier, the consensus is paid to be bullish. And most of the time, that means that if you are looking for things that are new, rare, strange, and exotic, they tend to be on, on the negative side. But, but my approach is not contrarian in the sense of always against the consensus. My approach is to say, looking at the world, what, what's going on there? And I'm looking for things that have some very distinct characteristics. I want to look for things that uh, that uh, have a good chance of happening. After all, you're ultimately judged by your forecasting record. Uh, I like the things that are important, not something that's going to be revised out of the data next month. And most important, things that are not yet within the purview of the consensus. And I say not yet because I hope they will be. I hope we're going to be right. So that's 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 my approach. Now, you know, one one example of that was in uh, early uh, early two thousands. Um, I looked at the housing sh uh, market, and and you've seen the growing in in the uh, subprime mortgages. And I said, hey, this thing is really destined, destined for disaster. So we spent a lot of time writing in our monthly newsletter, Insight, and and analyzing what was going on in the housing, and 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 followed it up. And we're very lucky on the timing. And and uh, we actually, I was involved. You mentioned John Paulson with him, and and uh, made. 20 times on my money, as a matter of fact, as a result of that. Uh, but that was that was a case of where, you know, it was just it was just so extreme. And and uh, but it it took a long time for for uh, people to realize that. And of course, you had to have all the major banks bailed out and and other financial institutions and a lot of blood on the floor and so on and so forth. But that was a case of looking at it at a time when. Uh, everyone believed, including the Federal Reserve officials, uh, you know, started with Greenspan. Everybody ought to own their house, uh, and 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 that housing was just great. You couldn't lose. I mean, after all, that's a great American dream. Yeah, okay, if you can afford it, but not always. And and you had uh, with housing, uh, you had you know, and you had extremes there. I, I remember this. This is hard to believe in retrospect, but it was true. Uh, you had mortgage lenders telling people that they could buy a house. And they would uh, they would never have to put anything into the house. Here's why: 
they could borrow uh, they could borrow not only the total cost of the house, they could borrow another 10 or 20 percent supposedly for down for uh, improvements. And then the appreciation of the house would be so great that by the time the first mortgage payment came along, they could refinance it and take money out of the deal. Now, a lot of people believe that. Well, obviously, it didn't quite work out that way. But, you know, that was that was just so. But what was amazing to me was when it just seemed so obvious that this was an unbelievable bubble, that a lot of people believed it. Uh, why? Well, you see what happened. Oh, took took uh, all the ba- big banks had to be bailed out, the, the mortgage lenders and so on. There were a lot of people who believed in free lunch. Yeah, and there's no such thing as free lunch. You mentioned the bubble. And one of the things about you is you are so adept at spotting these bubbles. Are there any bubbles that are on your radar today? Yeah, I think the, I think the biggest bubble right now is commercial real estate. Uh <clears throat> Well, uh, we've seen we've seen the uh, problem with office buildings because people now returning to work. There are only about fifty percent of people who previously worked in in offices who have returned to work. Uh, businesses are trying to get people to come back, but they are refusing. I mentioned earlier, companies are opening satellite offices to accommodate people who do not want to return to cities. They basically said, "Hey, I, I don't care for an hour and a half commute." And I got to tell you, I moved our I moved our shop from uh, from the canyons of lower Manhattan uh, to suburban New Jersey in 1990, and uh, it's no coincidence that that that, that our office is 1.3 miles from our residence. <laughs> I I got through with that commuting problem many years ago, but a lot of people obviously have gotten uh, tired of that. So you've had you've had the office buildings which are vacant, and one of the problems is that a lot of the of the loans financing those mortgage those uh, those office buildings are coming due. And the and the mortgage lenders, uh, they either don't want to renew the the loans, or they want much much higher interest rates to do so. So I think that that's going to be a problem. And it just isn't it just isn't housing. Uh, I'm sorry, it just isn't office buildings. It's uh, it's other commercial real estate. It's it's hotels. It's shopping centers, which have been in trouble for some time in a number of cases and so on. I think this whole commercial real estate. Uh, this isn't of the magnitude of the of the subprime mortgage bonanza, but I think it is a, it is a bubble which is uh, is beginning to crack. Mm-hmm. And not of the magnitude of the subprime, as you point out, but it does make me want to ask this, is this a trade you're playing? Is this something that, you know, you, you obviously did re- quite well betting against subprime. Um, I believe that was CDS's. Uh, we, we, have, we haven't found the right vehicle, to be quite, quite honest. Uh, no, I, 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 I wish there was one. There probably is one out there, but I haven't found it yet. I'm still looking. Well, yet. Um, okay. So I have heard, I have two more questions for you. I've heard you describe uh, forecasting as an art. And it's something I would, I'm actually keen to ask you about because I know a lot of people rely on models and whatnot. But I want to hear this notion of forecasting, economic forecasting being more of an art than a science, I suppose. Well, it, it is almost by definition. And if you, if you think about it, uh, Let's say you or I uh, came up with a per- with a perfect statistical model for forecasting stocks. Okay, what would happen? Well, the word would get out pretty soon that uh, that Julius got this model, and everybody else would follow the model. And by following the model, you would change the atmosphere, the climate, the statistical basis under which that model is formulated. And so that would be the end of the effectiveness. Long-term capital management. I don't know if you remember oh, that, yes. but that was when a genius classic, failed. <laughs> that was a classic case in that they they thought they had the perfect model, and but they were so big that they really became the market. They disrupted the market, and and so it it really didn't work by definition. When I was uh, I, when I uh, when I was working on my PhD at Stanford, uh, big econometric models were the rage, uh, and these were. Five, six hundred equation models of the economy that purported to explain everything from consumer spending on cars to capital spending on various types of machinery and housing, everything else. And the whole idea was here was here were models of the economy uh, which were based solidly on statistical back uh, data, and uh, they were unsoiled by human hands. So you put in a couple of couple of uh, logical inputs and it would spew out these wonderful forecasts well they didn't work why didn't they work because 
because uh, two reasons. One is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, people too many people followed them, and and secondly, they really failed in uh, 1973-75. That was a huge inventory uh, inventory cycle, huge buildup of inventories. People thought uh, prices were going to rise forever. They huge buildup of inventories, and then all those inventories arrived and. You had up uh, up to that point the sharpest, uh, deepest recession since the 1930s. Well, the problem is that the models, the data, the economic data uh, of the, that was worth anything didn't exist the last time you had a big inventory cycle, which was right after World War One. The data didn't really start till after World War Two, so the models didn't have any of the data that would uh, that would allow people to to spot that. So, so that was really the comeuppance of those. Of those big models, but I just say fundamentally, if anybody had a great model to forecast almost anything, unless you keep it entirely in secret and didn't let out that you were making a fortune and retiring to Hongo Bongo, uh, uh, <laughs> everybody else would get in on it and it would ruin a wonderful game. Yeah. Okay. So my final question for you, and I'm going to completely shift away from all things economics and markets and finance. And that is, you are a bit of a renaissance man. And I know you are a prolific beekeeper. You've been doing this for uh, over 30 years at this point. Yeah, Actually, yeah, the first yeah. time you got on my radar, one of my coworkers got one of your jars of honey. And um, I remember it had a saying, I don't remember which saying on it. I know you put a saying on it. Okay, so my question for you is, what have you learned about life um, from beekeeping? Maybe share the story of getting into it. Um, making honey. I know your clients get honey. And what are you going to put on your honey jar this year? I'm sure you always have some clever saying, and it ties back to what's happening in the background of the economy, monetary policy, and whatnot. Just fill us uh, in on your beekeeping. Well, yeah, I, I got involved in uh, in beekeeping actually in, in 1990. Uh, we have four kids, three boys and the youngest daughter, but the third son was, um, was doing his senior college thesis on bees. Well, I had told my wife, that I wanted to put in some bee colonies because we got a bunch of dwarf fruit trees around our premises. I didn't think we're getting pollinated properly. And she kept saying, come on, this is no farm. This is suburbia. Well, when the son Steve was involved, that all it took to push me over the edge. So one afternoon when my wife was out, we smuggled in a couple of hives. Well, he was he was uh, living at home out of college. And so he was a beekeeper and I was a flunky. And we just get know, just more and more. It just kept growing and growing. And then he takes off for a, uh, a job in the Eurodollar pits of the Chicago Merck. Uh, and, and so I'm instantly promoted to head beekeeper. Well, it was kind of like if you've ever driven with somebody repeatedly, but the other person does the driving, you don't pay any, you don't any, pay attention to, oh, yes. to the route. That was me. I'm instantly promoted to head beekeeper. <laughs> and so I'm on the floor with Steve saying, what, what do I do? Well, anyway, it's, it's sort of grown from there. And, and we've got now... Uh, 60 hive. I've actually cut down from, I had a hundred, but it was, uh, I've got a couple of my staff that helped me on this, but, uh, but uh, the beekeeping is very, it's very interesting. It's, it's good exercise. And if you, if you lift a, a box, uh, fully loaded honey, it weighs 65 pounds. So you do that at sh shoulder height. That's a, that's good for the tummy muscles, <laughs> but, but also it's, it's intellectually challenging, um, because, uh, I open a hive, I'm looking, I'm listening, I'm smelling. Is there a queen there? At full strength in May or June, there are 50 or 60,000 bees in each hive, but only one queen, only one queen. Now, the queen is a laying machine. That's, that's what she does. And a good queen can lay 2,000 eggs a day. But if there is no queen, you're in big trouble because the bees in season only live about a month. They work themselves to death if they get knocked off by a, a bird or a dragonfly. So I got I'm I'm looking there. Is there a queen? How can I tell? Uh, well, I usually look for eggs. Uh, queen lays an eggs. Three days later, it hashes into a larva. Then six days later, becomes the cocoon stage. Sealed brew, we call them. They're all within that hexagonal cell. And you got hex. You got hexagons behind you. Uh, uh, I notice. I do. To kind of yeah, like a beehive. <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly enough. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the uh, engineers have figured out that that hexagonal shape in terms of volume and cell walls, in this case, the, the outline, 
is the is the most economic uh, shape because it takes it takes uh, ten times as much wax to make uh, the comb, which is the in effect the cell, as it does to make honey. Uh, so that's the ideal shape. Well, the bees figured that out, you know, millions of years ago. <laughs> Your designer figured it out more recently. <laughs> anyway, uh, but it's uh, it's it really is challenging. And I'll come home from uh, a day in the bee yards, and I'm wrung out not only physically but also mentally. It's 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 and it, I like it. It's it's real intellectual challenge. I've been I've been involved in this. I'm a director of a uh, organization called Project Apis M. Apis M, uh, the scientific name for, for honeybees is Apis B. Malafra, uh, a honey bearer. But anyway, uh, this, we're the, we're the outstanding, uh, supporter of academic, uh, research into bee maladies. And there, there are plenty of, of pests and diseases affecting bees. And so I'm involved in that. So I'm, I'm very much, uh, involved with beekeeping and, uh, it's, a uh, it's a great hobby. <laughs> are you Overgrown still, hobby. <laughs> I love it. Are you still handing out the jars of honey? Why we? Are you still handing out the jars of honey? Yeah. No. Get, you, give us a mailing address. We'll send you some. What? What no, is it going to say? What is it going to? What does it say on away, it right now? We give away oh three or four thousand one pound oh. jars of honey every year. Oh, wow. Okay, oh, that's yeah. a lot. And, that's a lot uh, of honey. Uh, my uh, my administrative assistant. Uh, she's a. Uh, uh, always happy when you have a good harvest, but has to figure out where are we going to put it until we mail it out around Christmas. Well, I have to say, um, it has been an absolute pleasure. And I feel like I've certainly learned a lot from you, Dr. Schilling, and it's been such a treat having you on. I want to give you some final moments to share. One, where folks can find you, um, subscribe to your research. I know you have a phone number, a toll-free phone number they can yeah. call. And any parting thoughts for the folks who are watching and listening, anything that we didn't bring up in this conversation? So take the next uh, few minutes I think to we've so. covered the world here. <laughs> I think but, so. Uh, say, if, if uh, we do have a monthly newsletter, uh, it's uh, it really concentrates on economic and uh, financial uh, investments. And uh, if anyone would like a, a, a sample copy, we'd be happy to send to them. Uh, you can you can email us at com, or we have a toll-free number, uh, and it's 1-888-346-7444, 888-346-7444. And if anyone's interested, we'll send you a complimentary copy and, and see if you like it. It's, it's a monthly... Uh, it's a monthly newsletter, and uh, it, it may be interesting to people not only in terms of general information, but also as investors. Well, Dr. Gary Schilling, thank you so much for being so generous with your time, your ideas, all of your wisdom. Really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much.